Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about the earliest known states that existed in the Korean Peninsula and their growth into a political system known as the Three Kingdoms, Baekje, Shila, and Goguryeo. Today, we'll watch as those three entities struggle with outside forces and with each other for dominance of the region and for survival in the face of larger powers. Let's begin. We're here on HI101 with Phil Downey. I'm still here. You're still here here again that's what i meant this is part two uh-oh pay no attention to the man behind the curtain <laughs> do people know that I, I i'm positive people know that i record these all in one go all right i just i just don't really feel like putting out a three-hour podcast so i don't think a lot of people feel like listening to a three-hour podcast my podcast's already kind of on the long end for most stuff i mean there's there's well, some stuff out there that's just four hours long and that's just crazy and true but you've got the break in there too so there is a natural stopping point for a specific episode if people need to take a break or go do something else or yeah for sure divide their time for reasons this this show still got so much longer than i ever actually planned it to get when i first started them out I it mean, happens it happens i think the original concept was parts to be around 40 to 50 minutes that sounds about right with a break at about 20 to 25. Yep. That's never happened. <laughs> I remember you pitching me on this. And or I'm the like, first couple were going to be like that. Episode one, it was like, it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had some shorter ones. Actually, this one is probably going to be the shortest one we've done yeah, the, in a long the, time. The first half of part one went by pretty quick. Yeah. Second half was a little longer. That's fine. It, it worked out to still being a, a decent sized show. It's just that... Again, this is this is part of the problem of number one talking about things that happened this long ago, yep. which is not a ton of information, and number two talking about non-Western history, which it's really embarrassing to be honest how hard it can be to find material on it. I like, think all three of the topics I suggested were non-Western too. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. I'm so I'm so good at throwing wrenches in your plans. Yeah. It, and it, it just makes it so much more difficult and it's like it's 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 frustrating because when you actually get into this stuff it's so interesting it's yeah, such of course. good history why wouldn't it be well exactly why wouldn't it be but i just have no context for it i mean this this thing that we're talking about right now this this three kingdoms period i i don't even know where i stumbled across a, a you know very short description of it at one point and kind of went oh that that sounds interesting we should consider looking into that but i don't think it was through any of my courses i can tell you that much it's a shame 
Very much so. Same goes for uh, African history. Oh my goodness. I hadn't even considered that for my list of things to make Adam squirm. Oh, come on, man. You know I get final say on this stuff, right? Yeah, but you know I'm going to present one to you that's so good you can't say no. <laughs> oh, I gotta hide those away. <laughs> Dear Wikipedia, can you please take down these articles? I'm going to find... Phil's a coming. <laughs> I'm going to find your history friends and be like, yeah, you know that podcast he does? What would really make him, like, <laughs> his pants? <laughs> I'd really, I'd really rather not. <laughs> I don't see why you can't just pick, like, I don't know, something, something nice and classical and friendly <laughs> sometime. Just, you know, French Revolution. Or, <laughs> I'm never going to do that. The, you know the, I'm per, never The Persian do War. That. You want to talk about Battle of Thermopylae? No. You want to do that, Phil, please? I don't. <laughs> I mean, I would. But let me put it this way. You are such a wealth of knowledge that you can give me the things that I can't find anywhere else, right? I can get the Battle Battle of Thermopylae anywhere at this point. Yeah, but I got to find them for you. <laughs> well, you think I'm just doing this out of the goodness of my heart? If I'm going to be here, I'm going to get something out of it. <laughs> I I suppose that's fair. I suppose that's fair. No, some some of this stuff gets, yeah, more, more esoteric than it needs to be. I mean, I, I just even look at Imperial Chinese history and kind of go like, well, I've got vague concepts of it that are broad brushstrokes that encompass hundreds of years at a time. That's not good. Yeah, it's it, for the beginnings of a global society in terms of, you know, long term history here mm-hmm. where we're still at the beginnings. We've got a long way to go for educating ourselves on our peers at this point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Especially common education about our peers well i I mean history education as it is is in such dire straits that even people knowing something about you know their their own history you know depending on what what country they're from is like a little bit of a win yeah i mean it's it's part of the reason this podcast exists right is because you and i used to have chats about cool history stuff yeah like when we lived together and it was like yeah, this is amazing. Why didn't I learn this in school? Yeah. Because they don't they don't teach it. They, yeah, they don't teach the interesting stuff. There's a lot of answers to that. Some of it is, you know, hitting curriculum goals. Some yeah. of it is uh, the, the people actually teaching it. And it, it th- those two things intersecting can be a little bit tricky because you need to have someone willing to not only be engaged and passionate about history, but also be willing to try and convince generally teenagers to go above and beyond to learn about something that isn't actually on the list of checkboxes to get their course credit for sure well i mean i never understood your passion for history until you started telling me some of these stories and i was like this stuff's awesome like why don't more people get into this part of it is that i had some like just amazing teachers like i've had very very good luck with history teachers throughout my education but part of it too is that it's like why wouldn't history be fascinating? There's it no has reason, to be. <laughs> there's like, no reason it, it, it should get the rap. It, yeah. it does as a, you know, as a boring subject. Like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be boring. Part of that is that it's taught badly. But like, how could the story of, of humanity and all of the things that we know about it and the ways that we know about it and all of the crazy stuff that you couldn't even make up if you tried that have happened? How could that stuff not be interesting? Uh, like, just... By its nature, it has to be fascinating, like deeply and yeah. incredibly fascinating. 
Well, and, and you have to look at things too, like the, the widening of scope of, of history education in the last even 20 years where it's not all political and military. This is what I mean about the start of a global society, right? Like yeah. this is happening and we need to start making, taking steps rather yeah. to, oh, I, to, I, to address the fact that our, our knowledge of our peers is entirely lacking. And ourselves. And just, that's the most scary. That's the, the yeah. scariest one for me. Yeah. Yeah. We, we need to understand where we came from and, and some of the mistakes that we've made because that's, you know, there's that horrid phrase, you know, about. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to repeat here. it. It's just, it's the worst. It's the worst phrase ever. I hate it so much. There's some merit to it. But yeah, there's, there's a little, little nugget of truth in there. Yep. And yeah, it's, it's, it's important to understand how, how we got where we are personally and globally. But anyways, this is this is all very high concept compared yeah, to what we're this? actually here to talk about. The Philosophy of History podcast? You know, every once in a while I try to sneak in a little historiography or something like that because I know how hard that is to, to swallow even for, for people who come on this show. <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe if I can, maybe I can you know, squeeze a little in here and there. Uh, you know I'm good for it. <laughs> eh, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, maybe I can trick people into... To, into getting interested themselves we're we gonna do historiography 101 next oh i, I wouldn't listen to that <laughs> podcast be a but nightmare i wouldn't have listened to a history podcast until you pitched this one hmm. so you never know maybe someday you'll figure out a way to make it work well i mean i i, I had a very specific goal for this one in mind when when i when i started it and like you were you were there when i started it in terms of kind of hammering out broad concept of of the show or the goal of the show and it yep. was specifically to fit in this niche of what's already out there for history podcasts which is either it's like extremely academic and kind of dry or it's like poppy to the point of being like hard to listen to as someone yeah. who knows stuff about history i don't know there was a spot along that spectrum that i didn't know of anyone doing doing shows in that in that general area and so as a true embodiment of, of maker culture, I said, well, I'll do it myself and, <laughs> and went for it. And it's, it's gone surprisingly well. So I guess I was right. I guess the market was being underserviced there. How long have you been doing this now? Oh, over two years. Man. Yep. Congrats. Thanks. It's, uh, it's starting to go pretty well. Am I still the most recurring guest? Yep. Although, you know what this means? <laughs> this means I'm going to be getting a text from Miller asking when he can be back on the show because he oh. hates when you uh, when you pull out ahead of him. I'm sorry, Kevin. Don't worry about it. It was two weeks ago from, from when he's hearing these words. <laughs> much love. <laughs> Miller's the best. I love him so much. Anyways. He's a good guy. Let's talk about Korea. All right, fine. Last time we talked about the uh, the Three Kingdoms era, we had Sheila, Bekje, and Goguryeo. Kind of relatively well balanced until Goguryeo sort of stepped it up, knocked the Chinese out of the peninsula, and really put the squeeze down on Baekje and Sheila. So they were kind of in control, more or less, of modern Korea plus well into Manchuria. Mm-hmm. We're here for a second part, so it didn't end there, obviously. There's, there's still about a couple... Or a thousand and and change years of history to to cover here. We're not coming up to modern day, man. <laughs> I can't do that. It's not how this works. You know that. We'll get there. Just we'll we'll skip a lot. <laughs> Goguryeo did have a lockdown on things for a while, but 
in the sixth century, like around the the five thirties or so, it started falling into some political unrest. There was infighting. When cultures have good long stretch of things being relatively good, there tends to not every time, but often be some rotting at the head and people are making power plays and things like that because they're less concerned with outside threats and more concerned with inner uh, advancements. Yeah, Um, this is another trend we see all the time and literally saw last episode. Yeah, well, absolutely. It it happens all the time. They began losing territory in the north from from, uh, pushback. But really where the, the, the main threat lay was, was in the south with Bekche and Sheila, which decided to ally. And they had been allied ever since King Jiangsu uh, pushed down into the south. It was an, an alliance of necessity, right? It was basically a matter of survival. They had to put aside their differences because Goguryeo was too big and too powerful. Remember that balancing act we were talking about? Exactly. Now, Goguryeo had become so powerful, it was nearly more powerful than those two combined, but they weren't out of the fight yet. That's not nothing. Their combined forces are still going to be somewhat of a pain. Yeah. Now, I mean, over the years, alliances, as we talked about last year, flip-flop back and forth. I mean, even at one point, Sheila had been uh, allied with Goguryeo to to push back against a, a Bekje threat. So... You know, it goes back and forth. So for them to actually like formally like go, okay, we have to deal with Gogodio here was was a big deal for them. And really it was it was Sheila that kind of got to a point where it was like, uh, this this has to end. Um, specifically their king, uh Jin Hung, who ruled from about five forty to five seventy six. So it's a good long time again, right? Long king or long ruling kings tend to do fairly well in general. Stability is good because for... they didn't die. <laughs> they weren't you, killed. You say that every time. It's also about like continuity <laughs> and stability and things like that, and long term planning and you know stuff. Things things along those lines. They weren't killed. They that, they survived. That is also a marker of success. <laughs> yes, you're correct. Happy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he really got into building this strong military force. Uh, really built up the Harang which were those those flowering knights that we talked about last I was time. I for the, get these guys to come up again. Yeah, yeah. This is where it comes up, where it's like, Ogurio has pushed too hard. We need to get these. And, and it's mostly actually young nobles that are involved in this in this, uh, in this this program. Like, it's higher-ups. Wow. Because, I mean, in general, you want the, the, the peasants on the front lines with the pointy sticks and nothing else, right? <laughs> yeah. The good, the good equipment, and in this case, the good education, goes to uh, wealthier members of society yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't really describe them as meat shields but they are made of meat and they do function as shields yeah i mean the 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 idea behind peasant infantry is that they're considered fairly disposable and as such because there's they're used in a disposable manner why would you you know when you put yourself in that headspace why would you waste the time and resources on training them to be effective fighters when really all you need them to be is lots of fighters. <laughs> that is a, the perfect w- way to word that. <laughs> but, but that's what they're, they're about, right? It's yeah. about massing forces and hoping they don't run before the other guys, guys run. Yeah. Ancient, ancient warfare is a, 
just poetic <laughs> affair. Well, I mean, it is when we when we talk about it, at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's really got a, a real je ne sais quoi <laughs> quality to it. It's uh, yeah, it's it's brutal and horrible. And yeah, anyways, no, the, the, the knights are always going to be higher class than the rest of society. And especially when you roll, you know, Buddhist philosophy into it and yeah. artistic uh, education and things like that. Yeah, that, that should be no surprise that it's all noble sons that are doing this. You wouldn't necessarily be sending your firstborn off to, to join the Hoarang, but that's a it's a real good second son, third son type option. <laughs> My poor younger brother. <laughs> hey, man. B- both oldest. <laughs> yep. We we got a maid. A fist bump it. Oh, yeah. So Jinhung has his Hoarang ready to go. He calls on Bekje for support. They're going to make a go of it. They're going to push Goguryeo back north. And this really starts in 551 or so that they start really making this push. Now, Bekje has moved capitals twice now, further south away from the border with Goguryeo. Mm-hmm. One time by necessity because Seoul was captured by Goguryeo right. when they moved to Gongju, And then they moved it even further south to Sabi. And Sabi is useful because it's actually right on a navigable river. Mm-hmm. that takes it all the way out to the Gulf. So that even further expands their ability to be a, a mercantile power because their their capital is now attached to their naval network with both China and Japan. So it, you know, the whole loss of territory thing, not so great, but the moving the capital thing works out pretty well for them. Bekjay and Sheila work together, try and push back Ogurio. It's successful, at least in the short term. They managed to actually move the border further back north. Thing is that at this point, Sheila is getting, like, they, they've they spent so long subjugated by Gogurio, and they're so just really not used to being in that position that they're starting to get a little bit aggressive about it. And as soon as they manage to push Gogurio back north of Seoul uh, and take that Han River basin that Seoul is located in, within the next couple of years, so 553, they turn on Bekje and try to drive Bekje out of the Han River Basin because they want it for themselves. Wow. This is a really scrappy little piece of land at this point in time. <laughs> Everyone's trying to grab a hold of whatever they can. And alliances are really finicky. They're very fickle about keeping them. And in a lot of cases, you don't want to trust someone with an alliance any further than the specific terms of that exact alliance like it's not about goodwill it's about relationships of opportunity and of getting necessity. something done yeah back is all angry about this whole double cross thing they really doubled down on trade with i can't imagine why <laughs> they really doubled down on trade with uh china with japan and this is kind of the last time that you really see back acting as a military power at least on the level of shila or Goguryeo. And they, they really focus on this kind of cultural powerhouse thing even more than they had been before. And so now you've got a Goguryeo in the north that's ravaged by civil war. It can barely hold itself together, let alone deal with all the external threats that it's dealing with. You've got Sheila, who's continuing to build up this military, even though they're not like actively pushing at the moment. They're getting ready for the day that they need to. And you've got Bekje, who basically went, you know what? I'm done with this. Like... We'll make alliances when we need to, but we're going to buy our way out of situations from now on (laughs) and, you know, build up good relationships with non-Korean entities 
in the hopes that someday that may become valuable to us. Got to play to your strengths, right? Oh, exactly. And and that's exactly what they're doing here. Kogurio is not only being hammered by sort of these these random tribes from the north, but now they're actually getting invasions coming from China. At this point, China is in the Sui dynasty. And between 598 and 614, they the, the Sui dynasty turned their eyes to Kogurio, went, we're taking you over next. <laughs> and I mean you that that sounds crazy but they've been doing that in the west of china right like they've been butting up against the tibetan empire but also kind of creeping around the north side of the tibetan empire taking all these you know semi-independent states and incorporating them into the uh, uh into the imperial order so for them to pick another state and go you next not that different mm-hmm. now sweet dynasty had not been terribly politically healthy at this point in time there was a lot of kind of internal corruption a lot of issues with the way that the leadership was seen by the people not yeah i think unhealthy is probably the best way to characterize it and then they go and they attack Goguryeo, which is not terribly large compared to china it's it's big enough but it's spread out and it's kind of sparse it's also inhabited by people who are not considered chinese Mm-hmm. which at this point in time in the estimation of imperial china would make them less capable people at least in their opinion of them but then they spend decades trying to take goguryeo and They're failing <laughs> you said it man it's not like they sent a couple forces out and lost and went oh well i guess we'll go home <laughs> they lost hundreds of thousands of men to goguryeo that's nuts. And we're not talking huge pitched battles here. We're talking they're sending, you know, legions and legions into Gogodio. And the people of Gogodio running hit and fade operations on them, setting up ambushes, night raids, like all of these really, you know, what would be considered dishonorable tactics at this point in time, which, you know, one, one person's tactics, you mean? Yeah, one person's dishonorable tactic is another person's survival tactic, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's a matter of just getting by. So I'm going to interject with one of those questions I know you hate. Oh boy, what sort of population sizes are we talking about here? <laughs> can you I don't have it? that written down, man. <laughs> can, can you ballpark it? That's not that's not relevant to this story. Can, can you give me like a ratio from like China to Gagoyo? Nope. I'll <laughs> pop them in the show notes, though. Right. Uh, China is is significantly bigger. Yeah. I mean the the armies that they're they're fielding against Goguryeo are, um, as I said, you know, hundreds of thousands of men. Where where you know, Goguryeo is for uh, is is fielding tens of thousands. Yeah. So orders of magnitude. Oh yeah, Order yeah. There's least. no reason that they should have lost. Yeah. Part of it was poor command decisions. Part of it was not sending all of these people at once, but rather kind of trickling them in, breaking them up. Part of it was, you know, the the terrain at the in the north of Goguryeo at this point in time is this mountainous, rocky, very unforgiving terrain. And, and it's not a nice grassy field on which to conduct the ideal pitched battle between two equal armies. It's yeah. 
you know, the kind of place where it's pretty easy to dump some rocks on some heads. <laughs> Lest we forget the idea of home field advantage. Absolutely. And, and it's absolutely crucial here. But, you know, who doesn't understand that <laughs> is the Chinese people who have completely lost faith in the Sui Dynasty to the point that this war that they're losing with Goguryeo is a fairly sizable contributing factor to the collapse of the Sui Dynasty. <laughs> you done goofed. And the Tang Dynasty that starts right after it is named after General Tang, mm -hmm. who conducts the uprising to overthrow the emperor and instill himself on the throne because he was unhappy with the way that the war had been conducted, saw an opportunity and took it. Is there a religious connotation with uh, Chinese emperors at this point? Um, that's a good question. I mean, the, the country in general is uh, Buddhist for the most part. Mm -hmm. My understanding of it, I, I, I mean, I'll have to look this up and, and add some show notes, but my understanding of it is that at this point, it's moved away from that sort of mystic god emperor thing that they they started with in sort of the ancient or even uh mythical eras of of the imperial throne and it's moved more towards you know certainly the emperor is higher in the order of things but he's the leader of the empire yeah and and there's something there's something divine about that fact but it's more about being divinely appointed and less about being uh, a god king which is yeah. what you might see for example in in uh, japan at this point in time. exactly or you know slightly earlier on in uh egypt or even the imperial cult in rome like that that whole idea of like god emperor is not uncommon yeah but the thing about god emperors is that they can be overthrown as well as any other emperors and it, it certainly didn't stop people of other cultures from overthrowing emperors so even if uh even if i'm i have no idea what i'm talking about here and he was considered divine yeah uh, that's not enough to stop changes of dynasties at all no i'm just curious about what the repercussions are for like the society when your god is killed i think that even in societies where there was some divine uh attribute to the emperor generally it was posthumous mm. so they were an individual who was going to be a god upon their death. I gotcha. Again, I'm, I'm speculating based on a number of other things that I know, and I'm not entirely sure on the uh, the Chinese emperor at this era. Man, I'm really making you work for these show notes. Yeah, it, it's going to be a bit of a... I'm not sorry. No, I know you're not. It's fine. It's, it's a good question, though, and that's why I don't mind. I, I mean, in, in that case, what you could argue if you were the usurper is that, number one, well, now they're a god anyway, so... You know, it's not that big of a deal. Not that big of a deal. And number two, clearly the gods wanted me to overthrow him or I wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. It's it's not that hard of a thing to work around if you need to. And in this case, it's, yeah, it, the, the regime was not terribly well liked and was not terribly well rung. And General Tang saw an opening and he went for it. So new dynasty in place. It is worth noting that this dynasty was put in place not entirely, but a significant percentage of the reason that it was put in place was its loss to Goguryeo in a war. Yeah. So that's probably good news for Goguryeo, right? Probably. Maybe. <laughs> All this time, Sheila's been building their forces. Mm -hmm. Occasionally nipping at some borders. Constantly hating Goguryeo. As you do. And they see this changeover in 645 
And, you know, as soon as the Tang Dynasty comes into power, they're back at the borders of Govodio seeing what they can do. Sheila looks at this and sees an opportunity. And they, they kind of go, hey, you guys hate Gogurio? We hate, <laughs> we hate them Gogurio. too. Oh, geez, we should be BFFs. Yeah. What's your email? No. <laughs> <laughs> so they start talking. Because they both, they, they just they just hate Gogurio. They're so sick of these guys. Look them up there, not losing wars. Who do they think they are? Taking over stuff. Ugh. Ugh. Such jerks. They think they're so cool. Sheila allies itself with the Tang Dynasty China. This is a thing that hasn't been done for a very long time. Yeah, it sounds very not Korean. That's kind of the direction that Korea in general has gone up until now. I mean, Baekje has traded with them, but one would, one could argue that they might see that as taking advantage of China to some extent. Yeah. Because they're gaining a lot of benefits by being... Or, or having all of these uh, cultural and technological advances it's from funding. this massive empire available to them without actually needing to subjugate themselves politically in any way. It's funding the Beck J. I don't want to fight people. Uh, yeah. Reserve. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, China's happy to sell to them, so mm-hmm. they got no beef with Beck J. It's all working out pretty well, actually. Yep. But yeah, Sheila. I actually allies themselves with the Tang Dynasty and they go, listen, let's team up against Gogodio. This is going to be awesome. You get rid of your enemy. They stop bothering us. It's going to be great. So I want to make a prediction here. Mm-hmm. One, based on your tone. And two, based on the fact that anytime anyone thinks anything's going to be awesome in history, it usually isn't in the way they expect. I'd say that's that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So surprised. But we're not quite there yet. All right, keep going. Sheila and Tang decide that first move is not to attack Ogorio. Mm. Bold. See, it turns out that Bekje has been allied with Gogurio this whole time. And I put air quotes around that because they didn't really have a choice here. Allied means we don't have an army big enough to tell you no. So I guess we're allies. <laughs> also, they're very, very rich. So Tang and Sheila decide that what they don't want is Gogorio and a buddy to go up against. So both Tang and Sheila attack Baekje. And there is, like, Baekje is not ready for this. They're super not. Yeah, how do you pay your way out of that one? Well, you call your friends the Japanese. Ah. They sent emissaries to Japan and said, oh my goodness. <laughs> You won't believe what's going on over here. OMG, please send help. Super help. We really need it right now. And Japan uh, follows through. They actually send a fleet, uh, a massive Japanese fleet, actually, to support Baekje. And it results in something called the Battle of Baekgang in 663, in which this massive Japanese fleet sails up to the coast of Baekje, ready to support them. And sees a Tang fleet ready to go. And the Tang have basically told Sheila, you know what? Let us handle the fighting. You guys support us, like, you know, supplies and things like that. But it's going to look bad if you attack Baekje. So we're going to do the work. You just help us out. And that's it. If we run into some problems, we'll let you know. But 
we won't run into any problems. We got this. <laughs> the Japanese sail up and they see this Tang fleet sitting there. And they look at it and they look at their own fleet and they're like, man, we, we outnumber them by like more than three to one. Oh boy. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> and is they it? sail in and they attack the Tang fleet. And the Tang fleet manages to drive them off. Again, you got to stop being, you got to stop with the tells about things being awesome. <laughs> things aren't awesome. Sometimes they're awesome. They are, but not in the way that the people who think it's going to be awesome want it to be. This is going really well for Sheila right now. And then the Tang drive them off again. And the Japanese are like, this is kind of weird. And they're looking to get help from Bekje forces on the coast that hopefully will kind of give them a hand. And Huarang have come in and <laughs> kind of dealt with the Bekje forces. And they're not getting any support anymore. And the Japanese uh, Navy is getting tired and they're, you know, they're taking losses and they're demoralized. And all of a sudden this small Tang fleet manages to completely rout the Japanese Navy. Wow. At completely overwhelming odds. Yeah. And they sail all the way back to Japan. And it is, as far as we can tell, the most devastating Japanese military loss of the ancient world. It's, it's pretty bad. And it spooks Japan so badly because if you're Japan, the assumption now is Sheila and Tang are unstoppable. We're 160 kilometers away. Why wouldn't they come after us now? Oh, yeah. And so rather than sending further help to Bekje, which is probably what Bekje would have liked them to do. <laughs> what made you think that? They put all of their resources into building these massive fortifications all along the coast in preparation for this potential invasion by allied Sheila and Tang forces. And those fortifications, there's actually some that you can still see along the coast, but they put all their resources into kind of bunkering down. And, you know, if you know anything about Japanese history, that's going to be a theme throughout Japanese history is kind of isolationism and, and protecting themselves from uh, outside threats yeah. and you kind of understand why when they do something like put themselves out there for Bekje and in doing so end up leaving themselves very vulnerable and, and really feeling exposed uh, to these potential threats. Now, Sheila and Tang never actually try and attack uh, Japan. It, it stays safe, but you, you do sort of see that that fallout in Japanese society. No, what actually happens is that Bekje falls to Sheila and Tang and Basically, the, the whole country or, or kingdom of, of Bekje is, is incorporated in, and that's basically the end of Bekje for now. Oh, man. <laughs> Listen, you're a lot of fun to tease. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you just respond really well to it. I know. <laughs> I can't help it. And then they immediately turn their attention to Goguryeo, because now they've got, got them where they want them. They're incorporating the entire southern half of the peninsula. There is the potential for Tang forces to come down from the north, put them in that same pincer movement that initially destroyed Gojo Shan, right? Awesomeness incoming, right? That's, well, I mean, they know it worked. They know it worked once. Why not a second time? And they go hard against Gogoryo. And Gogoryo fights back really hard and, and for a while, but by 668... So, I mean, 
this has only been another five years or so, Gogorio falls and is completely defeated by these combined Sheila Tang forces. And immediately, immediately, the Tang attempt to place the entire peninsula, including Sheila, under its rule. Yeah, that's going to go well. What a surprise, right? I'm shocked. I can't can't imagine any other scenario that would have happened. But this is the this is this is the deal that Sheila walked into, right? Yeah. Like they should have known this was coming. I'm sure they were aware that this was a risk. They must have been. There's no way they weren't. They had to. They have to. They they and that's that's the crazy thing about this alliance is that they needed to have known that and still decided that this was better than the alternative. Yeah. Which I suppose says a lot about Gogurio's place in this little microcosm of the three kingdoms. Yeah, you're you're basically a Korean nation saying, hey, we would rather be controlled by the Chinese mm-hmm. than that other group of Korean pains in the butt. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting decision for them to have made, but... They, they made it and the exact thing that in hindsight is really easy to anticipate uh happened it's very much a scorpion and the frog type situation here you know this story you're not no, looking familiar i've never heard of this before it's a fable where uh there's this big rushing river and uh scorpion says to a frog can you please give me a ride across this river i can't swim and if i try and swim across i'll drown uh, but i really need to get to the other side and the scorpion's got this frog cornered, and he says, if you don't give me a ride, I'm going to sting you. And the frog thinks to himself, well, okay, if I, if I, if I take him across the river, he can't sting me because I'm going to drown. And the, the scorpion says the same thing to him. Like, if you, if you, of course I'm not going to sting you. Why would I sting you? We would both drown then. And they get out into the very middle of the rushing river, and the scorpion stings the frog on the back. And the frog says, why did you do that? And the scorpion says... I can't help it. I'm a scorpion. Yeah. (laughs) The point being that some things are in the nature of certain people or things, and they can't really change that. Yep. Not to say that there's anything inherent about these Tang forces that they uh, allied with that, you know, makes them uh, necessarily treacherous, but... It's an opportunity to take a piece of land that has been plaguing you for your entire nation centuries for, for, at this point right yeah and and specifically decades for this exact uh, yeah. conflict the fact that they embarrassed them not that long before this is is of course foremost in their minds they don't yeah. care about sheila when sheila came to them and said hey let's team up and take on gogorio they like, went oh here's our opportunity perfect to save face I'll, I'll never have an easier time taking on gogorio and man they were the most powerful out of these three once I've got one, I'll just take the other two. No problem. No more issues on this peninsula. So the king, and this is one of my favorite parts of this story. The king of Sheila goes to the former leaders of Bekje and Gogurio, who are essentially in open rebellion at this point. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you conquer a nation and yeah, it's conquered, but it's not like everyone goes, well, okay, going home now. <laughs> I guess we're conquered. Guess T- we're conquered. Time to take my lunch and go home. Yeah. No, of course, they're still fighting back. So he goes to the leaders of these resistance movements and goes, hey, guys, I know this is like super embarrassing question, but 
You want to team up against the Tang? <laughs> uh. And they said, you're the worst. But, <laughs> but yeah, okay, obviously. fine. Like, what else are they going to do, right? Yeah, no choice. And so the, the three of them worked together and managed to actually expel the Tang from the peninsula. Wow. Not the whole way. Uh, as far north as the Taedong River in 676. But that's the majority of the peninsula is is free of Chinese influence. Now, they've still got the Liaodong Peninsula. So, you know, there's, there's less truly Korean uh, territory than there has been in a very, very long time. But the part that is independently Korean is independent. Mm-hmm. And this is all under um, the banner of like a united uh, Shila. So there is no more... Gogurio or uh, Bakche. And it's interesting that the one that sort of stabbed them all in the back ends up being the one that's the unified survivor in the end. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised looking at this whole narrative that Sheila is the one to do it. When you look at their position in the middle, constantly threatened by Bakche and Gogurio yeah. and potentially Japan, well, not even just potentially at one point, actually Japan. Um, yeah, cornered animal, you know, yeah. of course it's going to get aggressive. It's it's not surprising at all. But the, the fact of the matter is that everything that makes a functioning state, a functioning kingdom about Goguryeo or Bekje had been destroyed mm-hmm. by the Tang and to some extent by Sheila. So... Yeah, it all ends up falling under Sheila banners because there isn't really another banner to fall yeah. under. They're the only one who's got anything left to organize under. And I mean, the resistance movements weren't going to succeed on their own. They could only succeed by allying with Sheila. And you can bet that Sheila's terms for that alliance involved, you guys need to cut that out. Yeah. This is Sheila now. You need to learn to live with it. So we have a unified... Korean Peninsula under the banner of Sheila. Again, but for reals this time? Of course not. <laughs> Damn. We haven't gotten to the break yet. Ugh. <laughs> More stuff's got to happen. You know this. So how about we take that break? <laughs> and uh, we'll get to the conclusion of this uh, Three Kingdoms period of Korean history uh, right after this. Sounds good. We're back on HI101 here with Phil Downey. Hey. How's it going? Yeah, it's all right. How about you? Not too bad. You enjoying this uh, this whole Korea thing? Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, was there a single bit of this that you knew before we got into this? Anything at all? Uh, the, get... the bit about the rich hipster, Kukai, getting <laughs> Buddhism. <laughs> that wasn't Japan. originally even going to be part of this show. I know. I'm sorry. I mean, I just had to throw it in there. No, I, I I love when I love when things go off course. That's that's important. I, I can't. I, I don't want this to be a hundred percent my plan. I want people to bring something to it, or other, or else I wouldn't have guests on here. It'd just be you chatting with yourself. Yeah, I mean that that could have been what this show ended up being. Yeah, but um, I mean, audience surrogates always nice. Yeah, yeah. Nope. That's that's why you're here. That's what I intended. I um, do. but other than that, this is all new. I literally knew nothing of this. Yeah. I knew that Manchuria was a place, or sorry, a region that was above Korea. Mm -hmm. And I had guessed that it probably changed hands between Korea and China. Oh, goodness, constantly. A bunch. 
yeah, Manchuria is one of those regions of the world that just by virtue of you know somewhat fortune, somewhat geography is just constantly contested. I mean, Manchuria has really never stayed exactly the same for I mean, I'm I'm sure there were periods of stability, but I I mean most recently it it was a feature player in the Pacific theater of World War II, right? The yeah. the Japanese invasion into Manchuria and uh and the war against um China that took place there, which you know, not a lot of people realize, but actually started several years before the rest of the world was declaring Second World War began. <laughs> you know, Japan at that point in time was was aggressively expansionistic and one of the reason, regions that they targeted was was Manchuria. I'm not sure what it is exactly about it. I mean, there's I, I know a number of things about it that make it attractive. It's more just at at some point it stops being about things like natural resources or you know naturally occurring harbors and things like that, and becomes as much about sort of the history of the region as anything else. People start pointing to it and saying, "It's well, another symbol." This this was x country's territory at one point and it should still be x country's territory and all of a sudden that becomes enough sometimes to to make some terrible things happen yeah yep yeah warfare is a funny thing wars wars happen for dumb reasons it's one of those things that keeps coming up on this show too yeah it like just the dumbest it's it's a it's a very recurring theme you know it's, it's how it is yep you like to you like to think we've gotten a little bit better about it, but we haven't. Eh, not really. <laughs> nope. Not really at all. We're still dumb. We no longer have three kingdoms. So this era is going to be called the era of the North and South States because Sheila's got, you know, all that land south of the Taedong River, like we talked about last time, right? Mm-hmm. Well, north of the Taedong River is technically Chinese territory, but they're not really supporting it that strongly. And here's the thing. Gogodio doesn't just disappear. That territory is still... The citizens there would identify as Gogodio. There are military leaders. There are politicians that, that are all Gogodio. They're used to that power, or that, that power structure. And it hasn't disappeared. What happens is that by 698, so within the next 30 years or so, a state called Balhe is founded, uh, actually by a former Gogodio general. And this one's going to be a lot like Jin was in the first section, where we just don't know a lot about it. We know that it took up the, the northern half of the peninsula and that it took up a lot of former Gogodio territory. We knew that the the people who lived there were vehemently anti-Chinese, but... We don't have any internal history about it, and we have very little external history about it, and so we just like we don't know a ton. And again, this is just a, a thing that happens with these smaller states, especially when they're very close to uh, a massive power like China. But it was a major power in the region, and it was a concern for unified uh, Sheila because it's sitting up there and it's got lots and lots of people in there, and they don't rule it, and that's gonna be a problem every single time. I want I want to rule it. <laughs> Meanwhile, Unified Sheila is in basically a golden age at this point in time. It takes on the traditional role of Bekje in a lot of ways as a cultural crossroads where it 
continues to do trade with China and to a lesser extent Japan, but that's still there. It also gets pretty liberal with the adoption of Chinese practices, including, you know, some government stuff and some education stuff. You see the adoption of Confucianism at this point. In fact, there's a Confucian college established in 682. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Confucianism. I know it's a thing. Sort of the Coles Notes version of it is that it's a uh, philosophy about the place of an individual in a society and where Western societies tend to emphasize uh, the individual and kind of autonomy within society. Confucian thought tends to stress the place of an individual in supporting the society as a whole and their relationship to uh, the people around them. And it's a significantly different way of looking at one's place in society. There's lots of other stuff that goes along with Confucianism, but it's important in terms of the sort of social makeup of a, of a kingdom or of an empire, where if it's kind of not even necessarily something pushed by the government, but something that's kind of instilled in the, the cultural collective consciousness that it's more important for a person to support those around them than it is to uh, look after their own needs. You tend to get a very strong uh, and unified uh, culture. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're looking out for everybody. That's Everyone that's the general looking idea. Out for everybody. Yeah, and, and I mean that's that's something that you're going to see in a lot of East Asian cultures to this day. This this sort of, you know, that's that's where you get even even just small things like the the importance of like looking after older family members, for example. Sure. That it's not like it's not like we don't here in the West, yeah, but it's not as culturally uh prevalent yeah yeah and it's it's not as it's not held, held to as much importance mm-hmm. uh as it is in uh for example chinese uh, society for someone to for someone in china to take their their parents and kind of you know put them in a home basically is is unthinkable it doesn't matter how good the place is you look after them yourself yeah because that's what you do anyways this this adoption of, of Confucianism points to, you know, kind of a, a strengthening of the cultural fabric in, in Sheila, but it also points to uh, a little bit of the loss of that sort of hierarchical uh, nobility structure that's been so um, representative of Korean culture, at least to outsiders up until this point. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see, like, it's hard to point to, like, concrete examples of how that changes, but you know, this this pervasive existence of Confucianism absolutely has an effect on Sheila's uh, ability to create unity um, among its people. It also continues to strengthen and deepen its relationship with Buddhism. Some of the, like, to, to the point where you have important Buddhist monks and scholars going from Korea to China and importing new buddhist ideas to to china rather than just the other way around and to the point where mount uh jihua which is in korea becomes one of the four sacred mountains of buddhism oh wow yeah that's a that's a pretty big deal you get stories at this point in time of korean monks or scholars even going as far as india on pilgrimages to learn more about buddhism and uh and and deepen their their understanding of the philosophy i had no idea that uh, korea played such an important part yeah absolutely very very important 
and this whole this whole structure of of kind of I think it's fair to call it a golden age at this point uh, lasts for a fairly long time, a couple centuries actually, oh, wow. um, before again you get into the same cycle of corruption and complacency and things like that. It's not as though they never had any problems. There were, you know, issues with uh, with Balhae in the north and all of this stuff, but you know. I don't I don't like categorizing all of these things as as nations getting soft because I think that's a very dangerous way of looking at it. Yeah. But I think it is also a lesson in uh what it takes to sustain prolonged peace in terms of understanding versus vigilance. Yeah, well just just understanding the the challenges that can go along with peace as well as the challenges that go along with prolonged warfare. For sure. I think we've put a lot of time into understanding the warfare side of things and uh it's a lot of times it's the piece that kind of gets us as societies, which is unfortunate, but... Unfortunate indeed. Happens a lot. And it gets bad enough that, I mean, by, by the late 9th century, so like the late 800s, you're getting into unrest and even rebellion in certain areas of Sheila. Like I said, it's just kind of, kind of a thing that happens after a while. This disunity gets so bad that it turns from just kind of unrest to actual civil war, when in the year 900, uh, a general Juan establishes uh, what he calls uh, Hu Bekche, who is uh, later or newer Bekche. Wow. Basically in, basically in the old territory, actually. It's in the south, southwest of the, of the peninsula. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically new Bekche. There's very little in the way of actual continuity from the Bekche uh, cultural, culture or society or government or anything that's all been gone for like 400 years 300 years but this idea of continuity is very important and again we get into that i that that uh concept of, of symbolism right of of bringing back beck jay and what beck jay stood for and making a stand against what sheila had become yeah it's a powerful move right you it's a symbol again you're you're taking a symbol and saying this is ours now yeah and it's back the next year, 901, another we have another breakaway. Uh, this time it's a rebellious royal named uh, Gyeongye establishes what he calls Goryeo in the north. And you remember we had that one king of Gogoryeo called Jiangsu, the one yep. who ruled for, for 79 years? I do recall. He did actually make uh, an effort at one point to change the name from Goguryeo to Goryeo. Mm. Go is kind of like ancient or old in this naming scheme. Gotcha. Um, see uh, Gojoseon, right? Yeah. Well, when Gangye establishes this place, he calls it Goryeo, like the, the newer name, and it's not ancient anymore, right? It's established in the northern portion of the Shila Peninsula, right? So you still have Balhae to the north of Goryeo, but Sheila has been split back up into three kingdoms once again. This is called the later three kingdom period. Jeez. Yeah, it's 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 almost like it's a natural state of being to some <laughs> extent to have these three on the peninsula. Yeah. And I mean, as much warfare as we've talked about, you can almost argue that the stability that it brought for all the periods within, like they're in between, um, actually worked out relatively well. I mean, we've covered centuries and centuries of history here. And, you know, border skirmishes are border skirmishes. They're always going to exist. Yeah. Not to, you know, make light of warfare, but there's been a lot of stability here. 
Now, the fun thing about Goryeo is that it turns out that Gungye is absolutely insane. And I'm not <laughs> saying like, yo, this guy's crazy. No, like he was actually a crazy person. Psychotic yeah. is not an unreasonable thing to call him because it turns out that he decided the best way to rule this territory was to declare himself a living Buddha and essentially turn himself into a, a tyrant, a dictator. Um, I can't even tribute from his subjects. I, I didn't actually mean to say that I just can't even, but I, I can't even explain the, the facial expressions I'm making <laughs> the the exasperated, like I really, okay. okay. It's, it's somewhere between horrified and just disappointed. It's just like, really guy. Oh, <laughs> I mean, Gyeong Ye had changed the name from Goryeo to uh, Majin to uh, Taebong. These are all the same exact territory. He just keeps renaming it. Again, psychotic. Yeah. Liter- like literally, actually, and also in charge, which is a big problem. Doesn't sound safe. No. This whole, this whole region often gets grouped under the name Hugo Goryeo. Mm-hmm. Again, Hu being... New. New. So when scholars are talking about it, they don't want to deal with the name changes every five <laughs> years, and I don't blame them. It's really annoying. So I'm I'm just going to call this Goryeo, actually, because this whole period where Gungye is ruling, you know, tyrants get a bad rap, and like for good reasons, but like there's certain things that they're actually really good at. Because mm. when no one is questioning you, you can really get stuff done. I'm not arguing for... <laughs> You're just saying there are certain things that they can do. Well, I mean, there's there's the the classical political science concept of the benevolent dictator, right? Where the ideal form of government, according to this one philosophy, is to have someone with unlimited and unquestioned power at the head of your uh, government. But this person also needs to have uh, the interests of the nation and the people at their heart. And that that is the absolute ideal of a ruler or, or a, a leader. Unfortunately, just like every other form of government, it doesn't ever work out that way. Oh, it's, it's, it's acknowledged right within the philosophy that this thing does not exist. Yeah. And it's, it's actually really interesting because it's, it's paradoxical in that generally the type of person who is benevolent enough to have the interests of everyone at heart also lacks the qualities uh, required to become unquestioned ruler of a nation and vice versa. Yeah. That's, an interesting uh, polarity. The point that I was driving at, though, is that the tyrant and living Buddha, Gung Yi, was building an army because he was sick of those nonsense, sick of that nonsense down in Shila and also in Hubakje and also north. Like, just everyone was. Come on, everyone. Why aren't You're you following You're all annoying me? me. I'm going to step on all y'all. <laughs> I'm a living Buddha. Why aren't you following me? I don't understand. I'll, I'll make you understand. <laughs> he goes on this expansion spree, goes to war with both Sheila and Hubakje at the same time, ends up taking three quarters of the peninsula under Goryeo. Wow. Yeah. Tyrant. Tyrant. Getting things done. <laughs> exactly. But like people, people understood that this was untenable. <laughs> they did. And eventually there was a, an internal coup. He was overthrown in 918, and the new person turned out to be blessedly sane. (laughs) So refreshing. (laughs) 
renamed the place Gorio, which was the original name. So we're going to stick with that. Oh boy, here we go again. No, no, we're done. We're done. We're done renaming it. I promise you. Okay. But yeah, he's going to, he's going to stick with that name. What he does have at his disposable at his disposal is this massive army who is already on uh, a conquering rampage. (laughs) And he kind of goes, you know what? This isn't so bad. That other guy was insane, but we're we're positioned pretty well now, actually. Sheila is very weak from internal struggle. I mean, that's what got us all in this position in the first place, right? Yep. And so the the new leadership sends emissaries to Fubakje and basically says, Hey, yeah, about the conquering back there. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sheila's really a pain though. Don't you think? You wanna team up against Sheila? Get rid of those guys? And they said, not not really, actually. Uh, in oh. fact, we think we can take Sheila ourselves. Turned him down. He said, okay, fine. Well, we'll take them first. <laughs> and the two Arms of them race. go on this weird race to see who can conquer Sheila first. Mm-hmm. Because whoever does it first gets the most because they got further into Sheila territory. And then it'll only be the the other one left to contend with. And meanwhile, where their borders do touch, Hubakje and Goryo forces are fighting each other. So neither is actually able to bring the full force of their armies against each other against Sheila because they're dealing with each other. But Sheila also can't get any purchase because it's dealing with two thirds of both of their armies. <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah. It comes down to a battle at the Shila capital in 927, where Goryeo forces and Fubakje forces arrive at the same time. <laughs> and they fight each other in, in the capital. Territory. <laughs> the capital, no less. And Fubakje actually defeats Goryeo. Wow. And nearly manages to take the capital. But at the last moment, Shila manages to drive them back out. But this is still a massive victory for Hubakche because, I mean, they defeated two enemies at the same time. So, so like, where's that movie? That would be a cool movie. It would be an intro- a lot of this stuff would make a very good movie. Like, we, that that's pretty epic, right? You've got, like, these three forces, and then two of them go and attack the capital of the third force at the same time. Mm-hmm. Wipe each other out, and then the capital is able to push everyone out. Mm-hmm. That's a cool story. I mean, I guarantee you that there are Korean dramas about a lot of this stuff. There's there there's a rich tradition of be. of TV dramas in in Japan and Korea, and, and they they love this stuff. And why wouldn't they? They're just amazing stories. It's very very cool. Yeah. So I I guarantee you could find it. Just would probably need to grab some uh, subtitles for those. Yeah, I'll work on that. Uh huh. If um, I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Sounds great. I won't find it. It won't be in the show notes. Yep, I agree. <laughs> After this whole incident at the Capitol, though, Sheila kind of goes like, "We're done, aren't we? Like we're kind we're kind of done, aren't we? We survived that one, but oof, this ain't good." And the king of Sheila, Young Sun, says, "Okay, well, if we're gonna go out, we're gonna go out on my terms." And he officially surrendered the entire state of Sheila to Goryeo in 935 really yep it's not who i would have imagined them picking i'm not sure exactly what the rationale was there i think it was probably more of an issue of 
it kind of looks like Gorio is going to come out on top on this one. Go with um, the winner? A little bit. But yeah, as far as his specific motivations for that choice, I'm a little unclear. This allows Gorio to turn the full might of its forces against Huvakche, especially because a few years earlier, uh, I, I forgot to mention actually, 926, Balhe had actually fallen to outside forces. Oh. So they no longer had to worry about Balhe on their, their northern borders, at least not in the, the fully organized. There's not a state that used coming to be. at you. Yeah. So Goryo gains the entire Shila territory at 935, in 935, which wasn't a lot of territory at this point, but they got it. But really what they gained was the ability to turn and look at Hubakje and say, well, you're next. <laughs> see you, me, buddy. <laughs> see how this goes. Um, spoilers. Not good <laughs> not, for Hubakje. Not, not well. <laughs> Defeats them a year later. Wow. And finally, and for the last time for you and I sitting here, Korea is united, the entire peninsula under one leader, which is Goryeo. Mm-hmm. And fun fact, mm-hmm. Goryeo yes. uh, is where we get the English name for the peninsula. Oh, interesting. Goryeo, Korea. Cool. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, so we covered like a good thousand years of Korean history. Yep. Um, still a thousand left. Still a thousand left, and we're not going to do them today because that is the end of the later period of Three Kingdoms in Korea. By the way, if you ever want to look anything up on this, you have to specify Three Kingdoms of Korea oh. because China had its own Three Kingdoms period, and it absolutely dominates the literature on anything called Three Kingdoms. Interesting. Which also, by the way, is a great story. Really, really interesting stuff. But that's kind of Korea in a nutshell, that they're, even their periods are being overshadowed by the chinese <laughs> so you know what this means right it, that you want to do that one next time we're gonna have to do korea part two we're not i see i don't think we want to do korea part two i think that that's a very good place to end things in terms of getting us to a point uh like we did with russia for that's example fair. where we got things to a point where you can kind of recognize this as the medieval korea yeah uh, this is the state of Korea. It is more or less the same size as the one that we know now, mm-hmm. more or less the same shape. It is more or less the same people or the ancestors of the people, at least. The the difference is, is that you can somewhat extrapolate from Russia being what it was to what it is now. Mm-hmm. But you and I both know that something went down in well, Korea. I mean, first of all, we, we went a lot more recent with Russia. That's true. Certainly the things that you extrapolated skipped over some gigantic and very important things <laughs> uh, that happened there. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, of, of course, the, the thousand years between um, the defeat of Hubakje and, and, and now have many important things that happened to Korea. And, uh, you know, the, the one I know that you're referencing and that I'm dancing around is the, is the Korean War and the division of Korea between North and South. And of course, there's. The, I mean, that's that's very recent. That's that's very recent. That's the fifties. Yeah. There's there's lots of things that happened in Korea and to Korea before that. And I mean, we only have so much time. I know. <laughs> uh, I know by by minute count, this one's going to end up being a little bit shorter. And that's honestly that's okay because 
to be perfectly honest, it was hard to pull as much information together <laughs> as I did. And like I'm I sure said, I, I like to make it hard for you. Oh, I know you do, buddy. I know you do. But I, I also think that this gives us a really good picture of how you get uh, Korea in an era where China is basically eating up all of these countries that could have been Korea if they had managed to stand their ground. And yet Korea is the one that did stand their ground against all odds. Yeah. And that, that resilience is really what, what sells this story for me. If there's, if there's one hook in it, it's why are you not Chinese? (laughs) The story. (laughs) Korea, the country that isn't China. Well, because it's, 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 it's remarkable. How are they not? It, like, I, I think I'm almost positive I said this earlier tonight, but just how? Yeah. Like, I mean, I just heard how. I know how, but yeah, still. We, we went over the details. It's it's How? It's, it's incredibly unlikely. Yeah. It's absolutely unlikely, and, and that's what makes such a good story there. They were underdogs through the entire thing. They managed to come out, not necessarily on top, but they certainly managed to uh be true to themselves and all those movie tropes that people love yep i don't think you're ever really necessarily rooting for uh cultural imperialism no no full stop and i I mean the the reality of of every period of every region of the world's history in all of those you're going to have some measure of that it's a prevailing theme usually successfully and you don't often get the stories of the people who were on the losing end of that korea is a is an interesting one because they should have been the losing end but they weren't through some sometimes blind luck sometimes force of sheer will hmm? sheer force of will rather yeah sometimes through you know absolute skill sometimes like through so many factors managed to survive when they probably, if I was going to bet on it, probably shouldn't have. Yeah, pretty impressive. Very impressive. I think that just about does it for Korea. I mean, it brings us up to medieval Korea. It uh, gives us the name of Korea. It gives us the unified peninsula. I think that's the same place, basically, that we brought Russia to. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same place that we brought France and Germany to when we talked Charlemagne. So... I'll let you off the hook for now. I'll bring it back in a year or two and say, hey, let's let's do more Korea. Because, you know, eventually I'm going to want to do more Russia. You're so gracious, Phil. I'll let someone else handle France and Germany. Those are too European for me. Wow. <laughs> I, I like Asia. What, am I gonna, what do you want me to do about it? I don't know much about it. We've gone from you not liking history at all to turning into a bit of a history snob here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I like what I like, man. What are you going to do about it? Absolutely nothing. I love it. Sweet. All right. Well, any other questions, comments, thoughts? That was a good story, dude. <laughs> I was. This is one of the ones where I've been most the most enraptured by That's the good. story. I mean, Charlemagne is still probably number one for me because it's it's Charlemagne. <laughs> like... <laughs> Charlemagne's a pretty good story. It, the, there's just no way that's not engrossing. Like yeah. it's just, but this this is good. That's very good. This I'm is glad a good to hear. Story. All right. Well, as always, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure to have you here. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting. And uh, I'm sure you'll be back soon. Probably. <laughs>
Everyone loves a good underdog story, and the establishment of a unified and independent Korean peninsula delivers. Despite overwhelming odds in all geopolitical senses, militarily, culturally, diplomatically, and so on, Korea managed to overcome a history of infighting and encroachment to create a unique history for itself. Next time on HI101, we're going to be talking about Prohibition. That episode will be up on November 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.